to the Bitcoin Podcast, episode 179. I'm your first host, Marcello. And I'm host number two, D. Host Corey's number- out. Yep. Corey's in London. And we're, uh, we just finished uh, the North American Bitcoin Conference in Miami. We're about to fly back. Yep. If Cello sounds like he's in a submarine, should we give him, should we give him some behind the scenes, Cello? Yeah, so... Uh, we're staying in the same hotel room, and we don't want there to be any overlap with our voices. So I'm in the bathroom next to the toilet, sitting on an ottoman. Yeah, there's a toilet ottoman in this hotel. And that's when you know you're in the big time. And you're, you're sitting on a desk yeah. with a yacht bay view. Yeah. Hey, that the conference is nice when it's in Miami. So we're we're fortunate enough to be here, and we've been able to capture a lot and meet a lot of people. But there's one question I have to ask, and it has nothing to do with crypto. It has everything to do with the JW Marquise Marriott right next to the James L. Knight Convention Center. And that is, why would anyone need an ottoman right next to the toilet? Like, what are you, you're going to be you're going to be taking the kids to the pool, just need to put your legs up to relieve pressure. I don't we don't understand it, but we understand that um, you provide it. So that is just an answer that we that's a question that we have. There's a phone too. So if you're like you're taking a giant deuce and you want to order more food while you're while you're on the toilet, you can do that. It's just a interesting combination of um features that are added to this hotel room. So anyways. Yeah. So a little uh, conference recap. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of uh gender movements uh, in crypto, and I feel like it took 10 steps back. A lot of bikinis, a lot of Lambos, a lot of yachts. Um, that's just that's just how this conference was. Very different from a developer's conference. Yeah. Um, stark change from a developer's conference. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, it's hard to argue. A lot of times behind the scenes, Cho and I get in arguments about the gender equality and and if it's meeting a point where we could feel happy about being involved with this space and it's really hard to stand on the foot of the earnest side when you come into the conference and it's just like, oh, okay, so there's basically basically strippers walking around at some points in this, in this conference. <laughs> and then the after party is at a strip club. So it's like, damn. I like you said, take a couple steps back, act like it didn't happen. I don't know. Who he is? Huh? 
Richard Lee is um, a Hong Kong businessman. Um, what is his blockchain project? I don't know. Are are you like Alpha Block or something? Anyway, yeah. Well, my point was, is he threw a million dollar yacht party with hookers and a private fireworks display and lobster in an open bar. And I, it's just, I don't understand. I guess I understand. If you run a hedge fund, you want to get business. But I just don't understand this grandiose spend money to make money thing that's going on in Miami this weekend. Maybe that's because we don't understand what it means to spend money to make money. But I don't know. Let's talk about crypto. So were there any projects that you liked? Uh, no, I had a, I, I wasn't able to walk the floor. Okay. So, um, so I'll talk about one that I really liked, and that was Atheon, A I T A G A E O on, E O E O on, E O E O on, A I T H E O N, and essentially they're using a, a token so bots can communicate with each other. Uh, right now, the th- oh, here's another thing. Before I go deep into Atheon, um, a lot of people maybe you should. You should uh, train up your PR team and your marketing teams because when I'm asking them simple questions like, is this a Ether blockchain or Bitcoin blockchain? Is it if it is a federated or is it a consortium? And they look at me with a blank face and say like, yeah, I don't know. Our scientist isn't here. Then you're fucking up. Like you don't want that. You know, that's like me selling shoes and like somebody walks up to me and they're like, hey, is this going to have enough? comfort and stability because I'm a little flat-footed and you're like um comfort stability I'm unaware of what these terms mean like that's exactly what it looked like for for someone like me so but anyways what it sounds like they're using is a consortium of master nodes and they communicate with each other and that's all the trust you need and these tokens tell the robots what to do at certain times and it's pretty cool I got like a VR remote control and I was able to put on some VR goggles uh, and control this robot. And I guess their long-term goal is to kind of like have very uh, dexterous robots on production lines doing things that typically, you know, human would, at some production manufacturing environments, humans do little things. Like they'll take a product and flip it or they'll take a product and turn it. So just so we can go to the next. So if you have a robot doing that or a string of robots doing that, then it's cool. And then if the robots go down, uh, a maintenance guy who is on the other side of the country can put on some VR goggles and all they have to do is change the outfit on one robot and they can fix the other robots down the line. So preventative maintenance becomes easy to do if you only had to have like a tiny hub of maintenance technicians that are virtual reality coming in to fix the robots like i don't know it's way futuristic but that's the kind of stuff we're looking at so i thought that was a really cool project yeah i um this this interview on this episode uh is with pradeep of solvecare and he gave this uh this great statement that i wanted to run by you if that's cool it is not cool i don't want to hear shit he has to say (laughs) no i'm kidding i'm kidding of course i want to hear uh, I lost my train of thought with that. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, so he was <laughs> he was he was speculating that uh, blockchain and healthcare, uh, if done correctly, all right, it's going to create like a fair system that 
people actually want to participate in. Because I think if you mention healthcare, some people kind of pull back a bit. So I was curious, like, you know, how do we empower people? And I, like, I have an example. So because when it related to your bank account nowadays, it's, it's common practice to get a text on your phone about like a suspicious transaction. Like I'm in Miami, I bought something here without letting my bank know and I got a text. Uh, but back in the day, you had to wait seven to 10 days for a letter notifying you. And that used to be considered acceptable. But this doesn't yet happen in healthcare. You know, systems aren't set up the way uh, because the consumer is not trusted to make the decisions. I think that's a good way to put it. So if I go into an office and I want to see if I have like an STD from that sketchy chick I was with the other night, well, time is of the essence. But uh-oh, my lab results got lost. Now I'm at the will of the system. And now I'm left waiting passively, not knowing what has happened to my test results. However, a healthcare consumer in a blockchain-based system now has the right to know every step of the process and be a custodian in the process so that I can become an informed stakeholder. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Because I, I believe healthcare information has to be given on a timely basis, not on a, not on a retroactive basis. What do you think? Mm-hmm. My first initial thought is why have sex with sketchy chicks? Um, that's my first thought initial thought my my first I mean, initial thought we're not here is, to judge we're not here to judge okay all right well let me scratch that thought then my second <laughs> initial thought i love how all thoughts can be initial thoughts my second initial thought is um i don't have a direct opinion because i've tried to be a healthy guy most of my life so i never really had any major health issues that usually when i go to the doctor it's like hey checking the oil oil good all right i'm out i've never had like a like a jurassic thing that i need to track and 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 wonder how the the process is going but if i could put myself in someone else's shoes i would say it would be very beneficial if i were getting like i don't know say i'm a lady and i need a mammogram and they squish my boobies and I'm sitting on the edge of my seat for like a week because I don't know what's going on. And then I actually just saw a Law & Order episode about this. Like she went and got her boobies squished. It was the the black detective master because that's what the job titles are. And uh, then like the doctor called her like a week after she got her boobies squished and was like, hello. And it was so dramatic. Like they played the violins and everything. And she was like, is everything okay, doctor? And the doctor was like, you know how they do in the shows. It's like, oh my god, so much drama. What are they Muppets? Well, you know the shows like they never say what the person on the other phone is saying. It's just like, and you're like, oh my god, it's part of the storytelling, right? It's like playing with the audience. But then, but then, Black Master Detector goes, oh okay, I'm so relieved. You only. You messed up the procedure. I have to come back in. Like, yeah, I could see how she would need to be a little bit more involved and have a little bit greater stake in that process so that by the time the doctor calls, she's like, yeah, I already know. I looked in my app. You messed up the testing procedures. I'll be back in on Monday. You know, so, I mean. Yeah, I think you just made like this eureka moment. The only reason why we have medical dramas is because the medical system is garbage. There's always tension and, oh, I need CC stats. Like in, in the future, we're going to have like everything listed, automated. It's going to be really calm. You know? I need CC stat. 
Whatever. <laughs> I don't even yeah. think that's a thing, but that's hilarious. I need, I need CCs, CCs of what, Doc? Give me <laughs> the CCs stat. <laughs> well, once we make this whole system like uh, organized and fluid and responsive, there's not going to be any more, uh, you know, surgery dramas, TV shows because everything was like worked out. Right now, everything yeah. is just. Yeah, I think you're right, but we got to understand the shakeup is going to be something fierce, man, because there's a lot of people that have built businesses on the way things are so fucked up now. And if you go into their office, and try to tell them like, hey, you're the you're the messed up part about the system that I'm trying to automate and get rid of. Then they're going to say like, well, wait a second. I have people that have jobs. You know, it's just going to be it's going to get kind of messy, but it's it's one of those things is. Technology don't stop at nobody, right? So you so, think that's a that's a barrier to adoption is like this theory oh. that that doctors are old, the administrative people aren't tech savvy enough, and if we're looking for rapid growth in the next few years, we might get too many. Oh, my CEO will never agree, or it's not secure enough, or there's too much regulation for this to work. I think, think absolutely. Yeah. I've done enough announcements to know that enough of these groundbreaking projects, when you peel, excuse me, when you peel back. Fuck feeling anything back. When you crack that nut and get to the root of the energy there and you ask them some question that has to deal with their political fight coming up, it's a conversation they're usually unwilling to have. They usually skirt it and they're like, mm, there's politics involved in everything, but let me tell you about this unique feature. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you're not you're not really excited about what your future looks like, so you don't want to talk about it. So, I don't know. Um... I, I I feel like these these projects are I, when it all what it all boils down to is all these projects are fine and they're great and if they're gonna leverage blockchain to streamline their services or cut out middlemen or automate things or actually use the blockchain for what it's designed for good but at the very end of the day the project that finds a way to make it interoperable with a public chain is going to be the project that wins that's gonna be the project that takes home all the cake. And has extra cake on the side so they can have their cake and eat it too because they got so many cakes sitting on the counter. It's like, I got three cakes on the counter, one in the oven, and one I'm eating on right now. So, what say you? This is an interesting time. Like, um, this last week was the uh, Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. And look, when you think Consumer Electronics Show, what do you think about? Like, Uh, I think about being able to play Marvel vs. Capcom Infinity in virtual reality. That's it. Only thing. Right. I mean, me too. But now it's like they have like sleep number mattresses on there. Like, hey, this is the future. The future of mattresses. This is is health. What? I was going to say, just to add on to what you're saying, is that I, I was reading an article in fancy magazines weekly. I can't remember what it is. Some internet article where um, the websites are really nice. And um, they said something that stuck with me. It was like, if you're, if you're starting a business in 2018 and you don't realize that there's a, a, a significant part of your business is data management and data mining, then you're not going to be around the next decade. Right? So... Nowadays, it's all about data. Data's oil, and even something like a sleep number bed could 
could be data driven and tech driven because if you got sensors on the bed and you know where people are sleeping and how they're sleeping, then you could then add all sorts of fancy technology to adjust that while someone's sleeping. I get it. Like there's in this day and age, if you're not using data of how your customers are using your product, then you might as well just put on that Lowe's jacket and get to work because you're going out of business and you're going to be telling everybody like, oh, I used to have a great business, but then such and such.com came through and just sweeped all my business because I don't know how numbers work. So. Sure, everybody that works at Lowe's. Um, well, I used to work at Lowe's, so maybe that was personal. I'm sorry, everybody. I didn't mean to shit on everyone that works at Lowe's. Anyways, we should get into the interview. So, well, hold on, hold on. Uh, uh, regarding the consumer electronics show, the top three topics, like, oh, you know, it wasn't okay. big screen TVs, it wasn't 4K technology, it wasn't virtual reality, it was pharmaceuticals. You know, can technology help replace them? Um, how, you know, global healthcare technology. You know, access and delivery, and how it's changing health and well-being worldwide. Personal health, the role of technology, stuff like that. So, uh, the interview today is with Pradeep Goel, CEO of the Solve Care Foundation. And he kind of gives us a glimpse into that, like, you know, how technology is going to change, you know, uh, medical dramas on TV. It's not going to be so dramatic anymore because we're going to figure it all out. Sorry, Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> we're going to figure it out. I mean, it would be – so he paints this picture, right? Um, he tells a really good personal story of his personal life. His, 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 his kid is sick and it's going to – have the sickness for the entire life of the kid being alive. I think it's going to be forever. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember that particular, but um, it took his wife something like six to eight months of phone calls and conversations just to get to the point where they could figure out where the money was going to come from, how the doctor was going to get paid, how much the insurance company was going to pay. And then he, he broke it down into what's the cost of all those phone calls. Like you've got, You've got call centers full of people taking those phone calls on both sides. The doctor has a call center. The insurance company has a call center. The person, the actual consumer is just stuck on the phone. You know, so there's a cost there. There's administrative costs to filing this paperwork, certifying this paperwork. And if you could basically just, you know, instead of having it be a phone call, have it be an app that keeps track of the doctor's in-network or out-of-network, it was great. And the best thing about this solve care is that they already have a network of all three factions of, I guess, the healthcare system for what we've interviewed a couple people now. But for me, it seems like you've got the client, you've got the consumer, patient, the doctor, and the insurer. And that's the triangle of trust that you have to build. So, um, you know, if, if there's a global, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. You're on a roll here. I was just going to say, if there's a global network where you have all three of those, I guess, elements um, working where they can all communicate with each other instantaneously in a, in a trustable fashion, then, yeah, a lot of people in call centers lose their job. But I've never had a conversation with someone in a call center that I enjoyed anyways. So. <laughs> You know, if I could just open an app and just say, hey, here's my search my doctor's name. Is he on this platform? Good. He's on this platform. Oh, is he in network or out of network? Okay, good. Let me push the button. It pings the doctor and the insurer. 
Everybody signs okay. They verify that I'm me through the blockchain. I've got some identifying factor, whether it's uh, SolveCare's identifying factor or they use like Civic or some other um, blockchain identifier. Boom, you know, then it takes a day. I don't know, maybe not even a day, but you know, it's a lot more streamlined and people in call centers lose their job. So, well, if it's uh, it's okay with you, D, after we speak with uh, Pradeep, I think we're out of here because we have a plane to catch. So, yeah, so let me just say uh, before we get to this. Great interview. Uh, we just wrapped up being a sponsor for the North American Bitcoin Conference. We had a lot of fun, a lot of interviews. We'll be at the Super Conference in Dallas next month. And also, this is just another friendly nudge to say that the CryptoCon 2008 is around the corner in Mumbai, the financial hub of India and South Asia. They're going to host the very first cryptocurrency event on the 3rd of March. We are a sponsor. So, uh, be on the lookout for that and for speaking opportunities, please contact projects at thecryptocon.com. And we will see you guys uh, next time. Yep. So here's Pradeep from SolveCare. Uh, here it is. All right, guys. Here we are with uh, Pradeep Goel, CEO of SolveCare. And I think I speak for D when I say that we don't talk about the healthcare enough on this show, even though it's always kind of a hot topic of a conversation. And as someone who's kind of spent 25, 26 years working in the healthcare system in different capacities, I think we're going to generate uh, a pretty good discussion in the next hour or so. Uh, Pradeep, could you tell us a little bit about your extensive career and then kind of like how you came to pivot to using kind of blockchain as the underlying element? side of things. Absolutely. Well, first, gentlemen, thank you for having me on the podcast. It is a pleasure and I look forward to the conversation. And as you said, healthcare is a really big topic that affects all of us. Um, and this is a great confluence of technology and, and uh, opportunity that, uh, that can help change some fundamental things about healthcare. But to answer your questions directly, um, I started in healthcare practically straight while I was in college. Um, I was going to university in the U.S. and uh, while I was in in college and was bored, started a a software company that really ended up pivoting to healthcare very early on. This is in the early 90s, 1991 to be precise. And um, I sort of got a, got sucked into healthcare at that point in time, working for uh, insurance clients who were using my software to do what is now known as uh, pre-adjudication and adjudication of claims. Basically, the process of evaluating claims to make sure they are properly priced before they can be paid uh, by doctors and hospitals. So it was an insurance-side software. Uh, Stayed with that company and built it up from the ground up um, to a fairly meaningful organization over the 13-year time frame. And in 2004, uh, after what felt like a lifetime, uh, the company was acquired by WebMD Corp, which is a household name in healthcare information, but they also have a large payer-side business unit back then. So I um, became part of the WebMD executive team uh, and was involved uh, in the role of a CTO and also a lot of public policy. Um, in, that, in that epoch, I learned a lot about how healthcare works at a national level and how the uh, public policy debate is is handled and how policy is written. And following that, um, 
I left OMD, started another company called Consumer Health Technologies, which um, was focused on the employer-sponsored healthcare. And my vision had evolved to the point where I wanted to really enable the consumer to do, to be able to do things. And this, I might remind you as well, before President Obama was on the scene, but our vision was even then to allow the consumer to have a greater role in choosing healthcare benefits and utilizing them and paying for them and measuring the quality. Uh, I think safe to say we were way ahead of our time, but uh, that was that was a, um, a great experience. And then CHT eventually pivoted to government business when uh, Obamacare was announced in the market, and there was a big rush to build uh, the exchanges uh, as well as to expand Medicaid. Uh, so I got very involved with um, that project uh, or projects rather in multiple states. And I, uh, I'm remiss to mention that between those two, I was also very involved in uh, the health savings accounts launch when President Bush launched the health savings account uh, legislation. And there was a lot of political debate about it, but I was a firm believer of that from the day, very, very early days. So got involved with the Bush White House to help write or define the legislation and think it through how it's gonna work how HSS will be configured and how they'll be implemented. So also built um, a big HSA uh, administration software, which I'm proud to say now uh, millions and millions and millions of Americans use HSAs from our early, those efforts in those days. So really happy about seeing that program become uh, a phenomena in many ways. Um, so from the HSA was an easy transition to the um, to the government business, from government business, we transitioned to Obamacare and implementing expansion of Medicaid for multiple states and implementing uh, consumer or citizen exchanges for healthcare to supplement the healthcare.gov that the federal government was building. So equivalent to that, many state governments built their own exchanges and we were very involved with that. And during that journey, I got to, um, and along the way also was working with um, as a CIO of a Blue Cross Blue Shield up in North Dakota so in that role, I was very involved with the clinical partners, all the hospital systems, labs, and pharmacies um, that we were supposed, you know, that we work with daily from a clinical perspective, from a payment perspective, from a utilization management perspective, from a enrollment and credentialing perspective. So it was quite, quite a, yeah, that's quite a journey in itself. So when I look back, 26 years, I've had the privilege of working for insurance companies, uh, working as an insurance executive, working for two presidential healthcare priorities uh, and implementing them in many uh, different uh, constituent areas, as well as being very focused on employer-sponsored benefits and always throughout this journey, focused on consumer engagement and consumer empowerment. So that's been my journey. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to say that I, you know, I think the sphere that I've chosen healthcare is really meaningful, both from an economic perspective. Clearly, this is the single largest piece of our, piece of most economies, US certainly so. It's also a very human thing. When you see the impact of what you're doing, good or bad, on people getting care or being denied care or getting well or suffering unnecessarily longer, it's very personal. You, you, you can't think of healthcare in the abstract. Once you get into it as deep as I have gotten into it, it's, it becomes very, very clear that these decisions have very significant and tangible human value. So this, that's been my journey and how I got into blockchain, second part of your question. Now, long before blockchain became uh, popular, I was searching for ways to improve the processes that I was responsible for, particularly at the insurance 
from the insurance side of the house. And I always question why we maintained as an insurance company all these processes and call centers and centralized systems that serve to impede care rather than facilitate it. And yet the answer always was where well, we have to manage and govern the utilization of care. But I think in most ways, uh, in, uh, the, what, we, what we are doing on the administrative side of healthcare is actually defensive. It's not about delivering best care, it's about preventing inappropriate care. And that is, uh, while appropriate and necessary focus, really takes away from the focus that should be, which is how do I make sure the right care gets delivered efficiently, easily, and in a reasonably pleasant experience? And how can I make the process of accessing care, getting care, understanding it, paying for it less painful? Particularly when you, when you need care, you, that's the last thing you need to worry about is how to administer the process of care. But that's what we all deal with. So I questioned it. I looked for answers and you know, tried to do things like service-oriented architecture to get all the parties to talk to each other and really always came up against a bunch of roadblocks, including data ownership issues and, and uh, orthogonal relationships and lack of trust between parties and so on. And when blockchain came around, I began to realize that there is potentially a way to address those fundamental relational issues that make healthcare so unpleasant for most people uh, into decentralized processes that could really save money for the insurance company, improve the, the quality of care and quality of care experience for the consumer, and reduce the amount of frustration and administrative overhead that the doctors have to deal with. I began to see this as a win-win if done right. Uh, so that's when I pivoted from, uh, from you know, the relatively comfortable um, executive roles in, in various companies to, uh, to starting SolveCare from the ground up with an idea that we are going to, we are going to build software that Pradeep, the old CIO, would buy because it is direct ROI for him and it's better for his physician community and it's ultimately better for his consumers. So I'm my, my own client, or at least I'm my own reference client. In everything that we build, I ask the question, would I buy it? Would, if you walked into my office and tried to sell me what SolveCare is doing, what would be my objections and why would I not use it? So that's sort of the journey that we've been on. It's almost uh, almost 30 years now. So That's interesting. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chell. Well, I just wanted to touch on that because you said concerning his pivot. When implementing new technology into the medical field, the question of of whether it can increase a customer base is held in high consideration. So considering that this approach and concept is in its infancy, will this technology be able to satisfy a hospital's agenda to do so? Well, if you think of healthcare as a prime, the primary healthcare triangle is three, consumer or patient rather, physician or doctor, and insurer or payer, right? Those are the three key functions. And all three have to coordinate and, and collaborate for any healthcare system to work, any healthcare to get delivered and get paid for. So the, so the answer to your question is, I think the blockchain technology most certainly will redefine those three relationships between patient, pair, between pair, doctor, physician, and between physician, patient. There is no doubt about it. Uh, and the reason for that is that nobody's happy today. I, as an insurance exec, am as unhappy uh, with the amount of money I spend on back-end systems and multiple duplicative centralized systems um, and call centers and, and eligibility portals 
which uh, I have to maintain, but you know, have see very poor utilization and on and on and on. Tremendous amount of fixed cost and variable cost. All of that positions me as the policeman of care rather than facilitator. So I'm the, the least liked party in the room, and yet I'm also the most necessary in terms of ensuring care gets delivered and paid. And the physicians have a similar issue. They got plenty of EHRs and hospital information management systems, um, but those are not really in any way engaging the consumer, and they are certainly orthogonal to the insurer. So there is all these EDI gateways that we stand up both sides to exchange data on HIPAA transaction formats and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's a very uh, antagonistic relationship, which it sh cannot be, should not be, because my job as an insurance CIA doctor in my care is to make sure the care gets delivered timely and gets billed correctly and gets paid timely. But that's not how the processes work, and it makes us enemies. And the patient is out of the loop on all of this. I, I'm pretty certain that you or Dimitri or I don't have a mainframe in our living room to compete with the, and connect with the centralized systems that payers and providers have. So you are basically without a system and you are an outsider peering in hoping that they're doing the right thing for you. And that's true for me and that's true for every one of us. So to engage the patient, I have to give them something more than a portal. Because portals are not really the answer. Uh, the, those are, uh, those are, they don't respond to you. Uh, they, they don't inform you. They simply respond to your inquiry. There are many limitations there. So long story short is that Blockchain is a technology, or rather distributed ledgers as a technology framework will ultimately change this triangle uh, and align it versus making people orthogonal to each other in terms of processes. Uh, is it technology infantile? Absolutely. It's, it's rapidly evolving, but it's not, you know, it's, it's not a uh, technology we can point to uh, 25 years in rear view mirror. But that doesn't make it any less powerful. It just means that we have to be very careful in the use cases we bring on to it. And we'd be very careful the number of uh, you know, active nodes we are anticipating on, on, a, on a chain so that we don't end up with, uh, with either a performance issue or security issue or just a bad use case issue. But the reality is, gentlemen, that there are more use cases in healthcare administrative and financial side for blockchain than there are on the clinical side. You know, everybody seems to be easily, you know, able to understand that you could share clinical records in blockchain. But that's not where I see the holy grail. That's not where I see the real value. While it is necessary and important to do what everybody's rushing to do, to put clinical records on chain, the real value in my mind is, is uh, starting with the, the more uh, nuts and bolts of healthcare, eligibility decentralization, uh, enrollment decentralization, pre-authorization, which is a huge pain for everyone involved, referral management, uh, ensuring that we have appropriate specialist care coordination between specialist primary care pharmacist, cost comparison, uh, and the best choice for pharmacy fulfillment, the ability to uh, to ensure that the bill is reconciled with the, with the EOB explanation of benefits before I make the payment. There are so much and so many really tangible use cases in healthcare administration and financial side of the house that while clinical is easy to understand, the ROI is far greater on the administrative and financial side. And that's where I am really focused on. And because these use cases are not as uh, regulatory uh, risk, in terms of risk, clinical records are the most regulated part of healthcare, right? HIPAA and high tech and GDPR in, in Europe, 
all those things focus on clinical data privacy. And that's the most regulated and appropriately so part of healthcare. But it's also not the biggest part by any means. Uh, the bigger part of healthcare is actually making sure that, that, that your eligibility or your plan benefits, your copay, your deductibles are real time and accurate. Um, that your, your ability to schedule with a physician is real time and not subject to, you know, to dialing for dollars basically, which is what happens when you need to make an appointment with a specialist and you don't know who to, uh, uh, you know, who to call and who's available. There are so many very frustrating part of access to care, administration of care and payment of care that we all have learned to live with. So we think that that's just the way it's going to be. That by, by no means it needs to be that way. So that's what we are after. We are after fixing the plumbing of healthcare, the way it works between doctor, patient and payer. Um, and yes, clinical records can flow on chain or they can sit in the EHRs or they can sit, be shared by an HIE, the health information exchanges and some of the model will evolve in the next five years, that's all fine. But what we are after is making healthcare accessible, making healthcare understandable, making healthcare timely, and paying for healthcare in an accurate way, regardless of where the clinical records sit. For that, blockchain is beautiful. It's, it couldn't be a better fit, which is why I'm saying the pivot. It made to me total sense to stop investing and managing these massive centralized systems for which I regularly wrote checks, you know, in the hundreds of millions of dollars to build and operate each year to large three letter companies, but they really were duplicated. There was really nothing different between one state Medicaid system and second state Medicaid system and 17th state Medicaid system, just a different color, you know, red versus blue, you know, lights are on the top or the bottom of the rack, but end of the day, they did the exact same thing just differently. And each of them costs hundreds of millions of dollars to build and operate. And I start to question my own sanity and say, why am I part of an industry that, that thrives upon duplication and inefficiency and that is inherent here? So, you know, I know healthcare enough to know what isn't working. And I realize that with chain, with blockchain used properly, we, we can address those um, fundamental inefficiencies, massive duplication, and most importantly, the, the, the orthogonal relationships that we have created without meaning to, but by the processes and the limitations of centralized systems, that's what we have done. We have pitted the patient, the provider, and insurance companies against each other. And we can redefine that. And that's what I'm after. So I got I got this old saying that I that I somewhat live by, Pradeep, and that is if it doesn't make it if it doesn't make sense, then somebody's making dollars. And and what you just said <laughs> is that all these systems are, are are duping, duping records, duping administrative uh, workloads. They're they're duplicating everything, and so that means if that doesn't make sense, because I know one thing: when I'm starting to prune data or, or look at anything, I get rid of the duplicates if it's necessary as soon as possible. So if if it doesn't make any sense the way we're operating, and somebody's making a lot of dollars, do you feel that there's going to be extreme pushback from these centralized powers as, as you try to decentralize some of these things and, and lower the costs? Uh, well, there's always going to be resistance. Uh, I will tell you a small anecdote. Uh, I won't name names, but I'll give you a, a context. I was sitting in the office of a state uh, ITCI, or state chief information officer, responsible for all systems that every state has and every state, believe me, has roughly the same set of systems 50 times over. 
Um, and I, we were having a conversation. This is about five years ago. We were in the deep in the midst of uh, implementing uh, uh, Affordable Care Act. And um, I said to him, to the gentleman, I said, Tom, you know, this, look at all these blinking machines and there's all these duplicate systems we got sitting here and your data centers, you got seven of them. You know, don't you think that this would be a heck of a lot more efficient if we move these systems to the cloud and not have these armies of people manning, you know, basically fiefdoms and, and the physical locations. And he's like, I love the economic value of it. I love the, the logical value of it, but you know, cloud is just too unsecure and unproven and, and IBM is making, or others rather, uh, all the IT companies are making too much money off me, selling me hardware. I think we're gonna get a lot of political resistance if I propose to the legis legislature in my state that I wanna adopt the cloud. But that, didn't, that is not really what happened. Now, every single state agency, every federal agency is a, you know, is a rabid adoptee of, um, of cloud. Uh, and now I go to federal and state meetings and I hear, why would I ever buy a server? I, I'm, I'm on the Amazon FedRAMP cloud, it's more secure. I don't need to be on my own cloud, physical environment. Took less than five years to pivot. And yes, there were trillions of dollars at stake, not billions. When you measured over 10 years, the amount of hardware and software that companies are pushing down the state and federal government's throat was, it was unbelievable. But we did pivot and we pivoted to the cloud and guess what? If you now try to go buy a big data center, there is not a legislature in the country, I believe that's gonna fund a build out of a data center. Even the, you know, a farmer representative in the, in the, in the Senate of a state will say, wait, wait, why are we building a data center? Isn't this Amazon thing work? So my point in all this is, initially there is always pushback. What you gotta focus on to get adoption is to find the ROI. And ROI, you know, if somebody is making a lot of money, somebody is also spending a lot of money. So if you can focus on the guy who's spending a lot of money and say, wait, before you write the next big seven figure check, let me show you an alternative and let's try it out in a, in a, on a small segment of your workflow or your population. And you can show them that that works. Then the guy writing the seven figure check is gonna say, wait, why am I doing this again? Why am I pouring money down this hole in the water when, when I have uh, an op option here? So, Look, the, when people make money, people also spend money. If one side is you know, showing the shareholders are happy, there's another side whose shareholders are not happy. So it's never a one-sided equation that the supply of money has no accountability and the consumption of money does. People making money you know, wanna keep printing money too, but those who are spending also have shareholders and boards to report to. I'm not in the least bit concerned that insurance companies have some kind of a commitment to make IBM richer. They don't. They have a commitment to their members, to their board, to their, uh, to their provider community, uh, to lower premiums, to manage costs, to reduce uh, overutilization and to reduce fraud. They're not there to, to make sure that the stock price of, uh, of the next Fortune 10 IT company continues to grow. So I'm, I don't think that we need to be overly concerned, but yes, realistically, if we cannot show ROI, and if you cannot show either a material ROI or a subjective ROI in terms of user experience or customer relationship or attention of provider community or better contract negotiation, if you cannot show them ROI, then yeah, you're not gonna get adoption because you have a cool technology. The technology doesn't sell itself, use cases do. And that's really what, what I, I was trying to say earlier. 
there are so fantastic use cases in healthcare that are below the, the waterline, below the surface, that most consumers are not aware of where blockchain can be truly transformative. And that's, that's the point. Well, it, but it seems like duplicative functionality and the inability to effectively coordinate care and benefits, I mean, we can easily, easily reduce billions of dollars in annual costs and eliminate the opportunities for fraud. So does this lend itself to proving the ROI and the reason why we're not getting adoption? Like, why is the system lagging so far behind? Uh, how are the, why are the current systems so far behind? Yeah, we could just automate the industry. It just seems really easy. Um, well, let's take a, uh, maybe it's easier to talk about a use case to explain why. Um, but, so let's take a, a, a very fundamental use case. You buy insurance from an insurance company. And so let's say you, Marcelo, are the patient. Dimitrik is the insurance company, Cigna, Yetna, United, uh, Blue Cross, you choose the name you like. And I am the physician. So you, when you buy insurance from Dimitrik, you are going to get a plan document. You're going to get access to an online portal where you're supposed to go and read all your covered benefits, what you can do, what you can do. You can go to the chiropractor three times a year. Uh, but if you go to in-network chiropractor, you will pay 20% out of pocket and I'll pay 80. Uh, or Dimitri will pay 80 as insurance company. But if you go out of network, boy, it's 50-50. Uh, and, but you first got to meet your deductible and your maximum out of pocket deductible for the family is 7,000, but your personal deductible is 3,500. Are you confused yet? That's, that's your basic plan, very fundamental insurance plan. Now, you want to come see me, so you call my office and you say, look, um, I heard that Pradeep, you are part of Dimitri's um, provider network, which means you accept that insurance card. So I want to come see you. So you come to me and the next thing I do is I get on the, the eligibility call with Dimitri's organization and I ask the same questions. Does Marcelo have, you know, what kind of plan does he have? What is his copay? What's his current deductible? What's his, uh, you know, coverage limits? Has he already consumed the benefits? Is it, uh, is this benefit considered in network or out network? I'm going to be on the phone for 20 minutes with somebody in Dimitri's organization just because you decided to come see me. Um, my job as a doctor is just to take care of you, but before I can see you, I'm going to do all this administrative work, which you don't know about, but I have to do it. So by the time you show up at my office, both Dimitri and I have probably spent $100 each in terms of call center costs, system costs, and time costs to just determine if Marcelo is somebody I can see. It doesn't matter whether I, whether I have availability or not. Now, if we can take that simple initial transaction and put it into the chain in a manner that Dimitri can publish his data in a, as a form of a smart contract that you carry in your wallet. And when I evaluate the contract in my care wallet, I can instantly get the, the real-time information that I need from you, Marcelo, without having to call Dimitri. Is he happy about it? Absolutely. He probably has 150% call center doing nothing but taking incoming eligibility calls from providers who hate him because he makes them do that. <laughs> so if I have the ability to verify your eligibility on the chain that he publishes to the chain, then I have no way, and we agree essentially execute a simple contract that when I accept your appointment, you, as part of the appointment setting, I can also execute your eligibility smart contract and check the information. 
voila, I don't, I don't need to have a front office person sitting there calling his back office. So it changes the dynamic. And look, average cost of an eligibility call is about $20, both sides. But that's average. That doesn't show the real numbers. The real numbers are that most calls when you make them are very, very expensive. So the metric has an ROI, simple ROI. I come to him and I say to him at SaltCare, look, I'm going to let you offer a decentralized eligibility contract as part of my care wallet application that you have, that, that Marcelo has, that I have as a, as a provider. And all three of us are going to be able to execute eligibility contracts inside the wallet against the chain. And you don't have to have an eligibility portal, which costs you a couple of million dollars a year. You, don't, you probably can cut 80% with eligibility call volume. So that probably costs you about 7 million bucks a year. What do you say, Demetrius? Should we try to put your eligibility into a smart contract and have it decentralized? Did and you he just says, well, did I just save you about 10 million bucks? Well, you know, that's the question. You will say to me, okay, I'll give you a thousand patients to try. And if you're comfortable, if I see that, that, uh, that uh, utilization pattern that you're describing, or, then I'll move the rest of my population on. You may not plunge in tomorrow all the way, but you will plunge in with a small group, maybe one large employer that you serve who is, um, you know, or you may serve your most needy population. You have lots of different constituents you're serving here. You may pick a constituent population and say, try this population, see if you can make it work. So my point is, it's ROI driven. It's you, your purpose as insurance CIO is to make sure that doctors can do their job easier and ensure the patients can get care easier. That's your charter. That's what you're supposed to do. So if I give you a tool that does that while saving you money, you have almost an obligation to try it. It's my obligation to make it work, but it's your obligation to try it. So there is ROI just in the simple act of checking eligibility. Uh, and there are, I have about a hundred different use cases documented today that my team is going through and implementing one at a time where each of these processes represents either cost to the provider or cost to the payer or cost to the patient or all of the above. And those are processes that have zero reason to be centralized other than the fact that we had no other alternative before. There was no paradigm to do it any other way. So I don't think that, that this is as much a question of, again, it's not a question of technology. It's a question of saying to, to the insurance CIO or to the hospital CEO or to the care delivery network CEO, look, I'm going to show you tangibly how to achieve your mission statement with a lower cost, lower risk, uh, better consumer experience, uh, and there's your ROI. And, and if there's no ROI, then it has to be very tangibly a, a delightful you know, shift from frustration to delight. Either way, I need to show something very clear. Uh, but the answer to those is yes, there are many opportunities really exciting opportunities. If you know how healthcare works, then it's evident how many different ways you can improve it. I got to tell you something, Pradeep. If you save me $10 million a year, you'd have a seat at my dinner table, open invitation, <laughs> all, the, all year round, <laughs> any day of the week. Um, and you know, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, all C CIOs and CEOs value partners who actually deliver value. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think I can say safely that the only way in my past life I earned a seat at the dinner table or at the board table was to be a vendor that brought tangible ROI and, 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 and improved user experience. So you're absolutely correct. You do get invited to dinner to the CEO's house 
if you do <laughs> the right thing and if you change the way their business works. And, and I can say that affirmatively. You know, I've, I've walked that road many times where you start as a vendor and you do end up having dinner with the CEO at his house, uh, you know, three years later. So I guess um, a lot of, so a lot of this, um, you know, blockchain network, it, it involves a lot of blockchain networks involve a level of incentivization to the parties that are involved. And to, to me, your use, your use cases are very simple because it seems like the incentivization for both the patient, or sorry, not both, but the patient, the payer, and and the doctor is lowering costs. And is is there, uh, are there any other incentives? And because you, people got to get on this network in order for everyone to get that those that ROI that the benefits of using your network. So so how are you incentivizing the parties to get onto this network instead yeah. of using it? Uh, if I may, Dimitri, I may challenge that uh, that it's only money. Let me give you a very personal example of why it was one of the big reasons I said we have to do something. You know, about a year and a half ago, my then two-year-old son, now he's three, was, was diagnosed with a, with a significant uh, disability that requires extraordinary level of care uh, compared to a healthy person. Uh, and the number of people involved in his care uh, exceed a dozen every week over 12 different, different skill sets, you know, pediatrician, neurologist, therapist, you know, even language, speech therapist, all kinds of people. And I have lived in healthcare all my life, and I can say safely that I have more than a few CEOs of major healthcare companies on speed dial. And yet when this diagnosis came around for a two-year-old kid, my wife stopped doing everything else that we were doing as a family, and all she did for the next 12 months was to get on the phone and coordinate benefits and care and billing for this one child, and it changed our life completely. And we pretty much wrote our schedules, and our life was driven around how you know his care and has been still continues to this today. But I'll give you a very simple metric why this is not just about many money. After his diagnosis, we were given a neurologist referral. Between calling our really good insurance plan and trying to find a neurologist that lived within 100 miles of our house and trying to find a neurologist that would be available who had the qualifications to see a child, a pediatric neurologist, it took us about two months of dialing for dollars. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Two months of calling every neurologist in the area to say, who's available, who can see a child, who's still accepting patients, who can see, um, you know, who has this specialty. When, when we finally landed one, we got an appointment four months hence. And then about two weeks before his appointment was due, we, we were told that that neurologist was ill and could not see us and we would get a second appointment seven months hence, or three months hence. Nine months from the day he was diagnosed when we first got him in front of a neurologist. And this is when we are living in a, in a state, Florida, rich with healthcare systems. If it takes you seven months to get a child in front of a specialist, where there is Dan Marina Center for Children and there's so much else out there. That is ridiculous. It's not about money. I would have paid anything to get him in front of the neurologist sooner. It's about ridiculously inefficient process of finding a provider, scheduling with a provider, and getting my benefits aligned with the provider. But now my use case that I'm going to talk about, 
the, my first use case, but very passionately that we are building, is where we can do a reverse model of scheduling, where I can publish on the chain my child's needs, my child's referral. Pediatrician XYZ has published a referral for a two-and-a-half-year-old boy with certain needs. That is a contract that I should be able to put out there and let every neurologist in the area be able to respond to it and say, look, I'm available on Wednesday at 3.30 p.m. for half an hour instead of me calling randomly the 67 neurologists and hoping one of them has an appointment available. Let's reverse the model. Let's use the chain to securely transact between me, the specialist, and the pediatrician. And I, of course, my insurance company needs to know that the, the doctor I'm going to is in network or at least is uh, certified and credentialed. So all four of us need to collaborate, but no, nobody does. So collaboration happens on the phone, and that's ridiculous. So my point is, is I would be, if you call, call me and said, you are Dimitri, you're the insurance company that I have a plan with, and you say to me, Pradeep, I'm sending you a care wallet link. Download and use it. And this care wallet app will let you do a completely streamlined way of accessing my provider network. Instead of you dialing for dollars and, and randomly throwing darts in the, in the book of my provider directory, which is 76 pages long, you can use the app to publish and consume provider uh, physician services. And the referral is automatically transferred from my physician onto the chain so that the specialist can pick up the referral and say, ah, I get it. This diagnosis, I, I have extreme experience in. See what happened just now? It, it brought everything down. Now, why would, it, why would I, the family, do it? Because my insurance company gives me the tool to take better care of my family. If you told me, look, I'm going to give it to you for free, I'm happy. If you told me, look, I'm going to charge you a dollar a month for this app, I would still be happy because I would rather not have my wife you know, be crying at the night of every day saying, I can't get an appointment with the kid for the kid. What would you pay for that? So the point There's is they put no the emotional aside. Financially, it makes no sense to do what we are doing. As a physician, you would do it. Why? Because now you have, you have inflow of uh, cases that you don't have access to otherwise. Doctors want new patients that are relevant to their specialty. No doctor goes into the practice saying, I don't want to see anybody. I'm taking the Hippocratic oath to sit alone in my office and take care of no one. That's not why you become a doctor. You want to get relevant cases referred to you, and you want to break the chains of being inside network boundaries. An insurance company certainly wants the kid to be taken care of because you know what happens? The longer the care is delayed, the more expensive the care becomes for you. You know for a fact statistically that every week of delayed care adds to your cost in the end because we all know morbidity goes up as delay care gets delayed. So it's in your interest, Mr. Insurance CIO, statistically and mathematically and financially to get the kid in front of the neurologist faster, not slower, because you're going to pay for it anyway. So everybody's aligned. Now, the question is, who's going to issue the care wallet? You are the most incentivized as an insurance company to issue the care wallet to the provider and to the patient family, the insured family who pays you premium, because it saves you administrative dollars. But you also are going to issue the care wallet because it makes you a hero in the eyes of the family that is dealing with a kid's care. And I will ask the basic question. My kid is not dying, thankfully. He's healthy. He just needs help with a lot of things. But if he was terminal, what would the equation look like? What would I do for him if he was on a short lifespan or if he had a risk to his life? You see, the, the equation changes from saving money 
to getting your family well very quickly. And if you have tools that put you in the loop with the provider, the specialist, and the insurance company, and they're sponsored by the insurance company or by the provider network, be it Kaiser or be it you know, Sanford or whoever, because they want to deliver efficient care. So this is, again, I, I go back to what I said at the beginning. Healthcare is seen to be orthogonal relationships, adversarial relationships, not because people don't want to do the right thing for each other. It's because the processes and the centralization of data makes those relationships orthogonal. I can tell you that as a CIO of an insurance company where we had over 90% of the population insured in the state, you don't think that I want to walk into a, uh, into a Dave's you know, barbecue and have the, the, the waitress come to me and say, you denying care to my kid? You don't want to live in that community. You don't want to be, you are part of the community. You can't run from it. You're serving that community. As an insurance exec, I don't want to be walking around in Walmart and be told by 16 people, hey, you know, your eligibility or your call center suck. My grandmother is not getting the care she needs. You will belong to the same people, including your own kids. So you have to do the right thing. So my point in all this is insurance companies have a very big incentive to adopt the technology we are building because you're building it for them to be able to take better care of their insured population, to make the providers more efficient, to reduce the cost of everyone, and to make the kids, sicker kids well again. Because in the end, if they remain sick, you pay more and more. So your goal is wellness, not cost. Your cost savings come from wellness and improving the population well, uh, health. So that's how you make money in the end. Happier and healthier your population, the less claims you get and the more money the insurance company makes. So incentives are not just financial, it's economical, they're societal, they're procedural. Um, but let's keep it very simple. Let's just start issuing you know, ID cards. I'll give you one very simple use case you can both understand. Whenever you sign up for an insurance company, you get a plastic card in the mail. Remember that card, Cigna, Aetna card, has your group number, your PIN number, your RX bin number. How many times do you actually have it in your wallet when you actually go to the pharmacy or to the doctor? How many times do you go looking for it? And how many times do you find out the card you have in your wallet is old or expired? And that's just simple human fact and none of us are gonna worry about having our healthcare card up to date. But here is the other problem, you as an insurance executive, had to actually print and mail that card and you print, and every time the card is lost, you have to print and mail another one. Or despite the fact that you mail, mail the card, the, when the eligibility call comes in, they're giving you the old PIN number and therefore you're having to match up to the fact that that's an old card. So look, end of the day, you have a highly inefficient problem in that you got to print and mail stuff that nobody carries or, or cares about till they need it and then they call your call center in the end. So why are you printing and mailing these cards? Because you're required to. Why don't you put a electronic insurance card with an attached smart contract in everybody's care wallet? And for less than it costs for you to print and mail the card, you would have a, you would reduce the call center volume, call volume. So it's a win, win, win. Nobody loses in this equation. You don't have to pay for foolishness and repetitive process. They don't add value. You can reduce your incoming call volume and the person who used to call you doesn't need to call you. So they're happier because some things, they, you are no longer an impediment to their care. You are actually facilitating. As a consumer, I'm happy with the fact that when I go see a doctor, I don't have to first call the Matrix insurance company. I can just go, walk up to the provider and say, 
here is my card ID, it's verified on the chain, you can check it, I'm current, I have, this is my deductible, I'm done. You see, everybody wins. The doctor is happier, mm -hmm. the patient is far happier, and you are happy because you don't have this ridiculous, wasteful cost center on your Absolutely. side. Absolutely. And there's a lot of social implications, too. The, I like that you, it seems like at SolveCare, you guys are doing a great job of mapping out the experience of the of the users, of the parties involved. And there's going to be vernacular changes there. Like, hey, here's my... Here's my ID card. Here's my digital ID card. You can scan and verify it on the chain. If you're saying things like that to the, the receptionist, like that's a that's a cultural change, you know. So I mean, there's a, there's a lot of solid implications that you guys are are, are actively working on. Um, sounds great. I, I'd like to ask. Yeah. Or, gonna... Go ahead. Yeah. No, please go ahead. I, I'd like to ask. Earlier in the conversation, you said. Um, you know, if somebody's walking into a room trying to solve me, trying to sell me on solve care, what would be my objections? What would be the things that would pique my interest? So, uh, just using our show as a platform for solve care, like what are your, what were your objections, and what now are currently your like top three? This is why I would use the hell out of solve care. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so, you know, when I look at any new technology, I first need to understand, first and foremost, what is my use case and who are my use users? Um, so what is the, the adoption challenge that I have? And I can always mandate as an insurance company a certain, certain efficiencies, but is it going to be a negative or a positive user experience? So I, I want to understand the use case. I want to understand the ROI. I want to understand is the ROI measurable and attainable? Those are every question that every good executive will ask. But then the other question that comes to my mind is, uh, okay, what's my data security? And even more than that, what's my integration upfront integration requirements? How much time and effort I have to spend with my scarce resources to, uh, to launch this? Are you gonna rely upon me to re-engineer my backend systems? Are you relying upon me to do a fair bit of integration before you can launch this use case? Which means I have a negative impact on my current projects. Um, and then who's gonna support me? You know, if some, when something goes wrong, it, and inevitably it will, whose throat do I get to choke and who's going to be accountable for it? Is it <laughs> going to be some abstract, you know, do I have to get on a, you know, a bulletin board or a chat group and beg for help, or, which I'm never going to do? Or do I have a speed dial of the CEO of some company that's responsible for making sure that what I have bought and what I need to run is running? So I need to have that support accountability and, and ownership of the solution. Um, I want to know that it, it has some scalability. Yeah. So, you know, those are the, my questions. Uh, it's a, you know, notice it's not about how much it costs because I, I'm much more interested in how much the ROI is. It's not how much it costs upfront, it's how much can I save in a year that matters to me far more. Uh, because for the right ideas and for the improvement ideas, there's always capital available. But for, you know, for uh, Hail Mary ideas, where it's throw and pray, there's never capital available. No matter whether you're you know, whether you're a Fortune 1 company or a Fortune 1000 company, you always have to balance demand and supply. So uh, those are all my questions. But, you know, you start with the fundamental question. What's the use case? What's the ROI? Who are the users? Why would they use it? Do I have enough influence over the users to make them use this technology and at least have them try to create the early adopter in my network? Can I get the first 100 providers to use the technology? Uh, and if I can, the next 100,000 will come. 
But if I can get the first hundred providers to use it because it's so clumsy and unusable, then this, it's a dead end. We're not going anywhere. So I always used to pick on, I used to get, you know, five to seven pitches a day from companies, uh, you know, as big as, you know, the household names to startups. And I always had to evaluate, okay, what they're pitching me, can I get my initial audience to adopt it? And can I get an internal organization to support it? Uh, and do I have external support from this company if, when, when, when things go wrong? If I could answer those three questions correctly in the context of a defined ROI in a defined time frame, yeah, I would give it a shot. Absolutely. Um, so I do want to say one thing here. You know, using that same model, you know, we haven't announced this yet, so I think we'll use your platform to announce it. We have signed a significant U.S. healthcare organization as a client as we speak uh, into a multi-year contract to use Care Wallet, our, our fundamental core application on, on, on blockchain, Care Cards to, uh, to do specific provider payments and Care Coins as a mechanism of provider payments uh, as we speak. So we have, we, we have passed the point of evangelizing and educating the market. We are actually in implementation of a significant healthcare network using this. Uh, and there is a multi-stage expansion planned uh, with this client where the number of providers using the care wallet, uh, it grows every quarter steadily into several thousand. So we're starting with, uh, you know, with about a thousand providers and then growing rapidly from there on. So we are, we are very excited about the fact that, that our use case has not only resonated when they did the ROI modeling, it was a no-brainer. Our ROI, as one of the, as the CEO put it, your ROI is instant. If you can do this, I start saving money the day you go live, not some six months later. Uh, I have to try it. I have a responsibility to try it. So we are we are no longer out there, you know, trying to convince people of blockchain. This is isn't about blockchain as a technology. It's about what blockchain can do you know, to change their processes. So long story short is. Uh, you know, this is a major stepping stone. Uh, I call this, you know, I told my team when we signed the contract, uh, we, are, we are not here to evangelize. We are here to deliver a tangible working solution that will impact hundreds of thousands of families and their care and their cost. So this is, um, the other thing that I should point out is that the contract covers, you know, several thousand physicians, several hundred facilities, and hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of families. So. We are, uh, we are well on our way to making what we've been saying a household, uh, you know, uh, household model. Now, one client is one client, but it's a very major, significant client, uh, and it's a very large organization with footprint in 27 states. So mm -hmm. we, are, uh, we couldn't be more excited. You got 99 more, more to go, right? You said get that first 100 <laughs> clients. You got 99 more to go. True, true. But you know, in this, in our market, uh, the healthcare really is in the U.S. You know, it's it's about that's a total. You know, if you look at the total number of IDNs and the major carriers, the number isn't vast, but the mm -hmm. number of lives they touch is vast. Yeah. Right. So it's uh, this is a very impactful platform with a very impactful uh, financial and clinical and societal impact that we are proud to move beyond. Uh, you know, as I call it, beyond the talk and beyond the aspiration to an actual um, production and launch. Also means that we then, you know, we are a revenue producing company as of now. So our, we are producing blockchain revenue, not by selling some consulting services or, 
or doing something uh, around blockchain in the abstract, but rather transactional revenue from running healthcare transactions on blockchain. Okay. Well, Pradeep, we have one last question for you. Uh, it, it's probably going to be the toughest questions we've asked that we've asked you um, <laughs> thus far. And that is in 10 words or less, can you describe blockchain? <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that's a tough one, but I will, the way I'd explain it to my clients is how I'll explain it. I tried to explain to everyone that blockchain is a distributed ledger that is replicated um, across different stakeholders in a manner that we can all have concurrency and agreement on events that have occurred or did not occur without having to talk to each other. So if you need to verify, and I always use a use case, if you need to verify my eligibility with Dimitri's insurance company, then you, Marcel, the doctor, don't have to call. You can check the ledger, and the ledger is guaranteed to be accurate, and all three of us share the same ledger. And when you start thinking about the implications of that, you can do so many things that used to require a centralized clearinghouse function or a trusted authority. Now we can all trust the ledger instead of having to call and check. And that that's the fundamental blockchain technology that we are you know, the description of technology that I use. Yeah, well, I want to invite you, uh, as the expansion of the platform goes from 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0, hopefully you can give us an update on the roadmap, and you're welcome back anytime. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I, this has been a very uh, meaningful conversation for me as well. Great questions, and appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience. Thanks very much. Absolutely.